0: You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, we're just looking at three verses this afternoon, verses 24 through 26, making our way through this Sermon on the Plain as it's been referred to. Many parallels with the Sermon on the Mount, but as I've stated before, I don't believe it is the same. Sermon, but and this really brings us to one of the first significant shifts from the Sermon on the Mount. They both have they both began with the Beatitudes, although in Luke you have fewer of the Beatitudes than you find in Matthew. But here you have Jesus pronouncing woes, and that is not present in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Well, the world says. Who are you to judge? You know, you've heard that before. Probably other Christians have said that before, thinking that you were just being legalistic about correcting them, either of a particular doctrine or sin. And the suggestion from the world is they need, that we just need to take more of Jesus' advice that we judge not. They rip that verse out of context, they know that verse better than any other, and yet they clearly have not read this passage, right, where Jesus is not holding back, he's giving a stern warning. And these woes, they stand in direct contrast to the Beatitudes, they're in parallel order. So that we really could have looked at these um, last time and, and just said, which was two weeks ago now. Um, and, and just gone back and forth between blessed are the poor and then here woe to the rich or blessed are you who are hungry now or woe to you who are full now. You see there's there's a direct parallel. You can put them right alongside one another. But they stand in contrast to the Beatitudes and, and there's a purpose for them to sort of wake us up. Beatitudes are means of encouraging those who are in this life are in despair or going through trials and struggle, but then there's a warning for those who are, who are not under a trial, who aren't, who aren't experiencing hardship, those who seem to have everything that this life has to offer. And I think the point is, as pastors, you should be preaching both, right? That Teachers in the church need to be acknowledging both realities here. In fact, they both, I think, point to the same main idea that our hope is not in this life. Right? That, that if you're suffering now, there is an eternity of joy that awaits. That should be your hope. It's a reminder that this life is, doesn't offer you everything you long for. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory talks about that, that we have this longing for something more, and that itself is proof that, there's, that we've been created for something more. We've been created for eternity. Right? And we're not satisfied until we get there. And then there's this warning, though, if, you, if you're still trying to find that satisfaction in this life, that this is as good as it gets. So remember, this sermon was specifically addressing, addressed to the disciples. He says that in verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, he had gathered a great crowd, his disciples, and, and the crowds were traveling upwards of 100 miles to get there to see him, to hear him, to be healed by him, and then he begins to speak and he looks right at his followers. And so this sermon is for us. And these warnings are for us. And that might rattle some of us, right? We don't want to hear warnings. We say, no, that's, that's for those outside the church. But no, it's, it, he's talking to his disciples still. So what can that mean? If, if these woes are speaking of an eternal punishment that awaits those who only find satisfaction in this life, then why why are they called disciples earlier? I think it's the same thing we see in Hebrews. I think it has to do with the fact that the church, those who profess faith in Christ, are not always genuine believers. These warnings are for the church. It's for everyone to consider, to, to be challenged by, to, to wrestle with. What are, where is my hope? Am I putting my trust in, eternity, in, in what comes uh, in my inheritance that awaits? Or am I putting all my hope in this life? Can I live without any of these things that will be mentioned in these woes? So these warnings do apply to believers. Jesus seeks now to redirect our hearts to what is eternal rather than temporal. And I think if you could summarize it, it would be this, that doom awaits those who settle for the best this world has to offer. Doom, destruction, awaits those who settle for the best this world has to offer. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you Sometimes your word rattles our conscience and brings conviction, and we need to to sit there underneath that for a bit. It's easy for us to sort of want to jump ahead, to to get to the comfort, to get to where, where we can talk about our rest. Talk about our joy. And yet, even as we saw this morning, we, we want to, to have the whole counsel of God's word. We want to recognize all of your attributes. And we want to take these warnings to heart. We want to take them seriously and to consider if there's anything in us, any wayward way in our hearts that is, that is depending upon this life more than the one to come. And so, Lord, do that work in us. Bring us, draw us more in line with your will. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Luke 6, verses 24 through 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Amen. This is God's holy word. So verse 24 deals with this first woe, woe to you who are rich. Remember, Jesus here is addressing those who are in material prosperity, or he's he's talking at least in this woe specifically to those who are rich, to those who have material prosperity, but he's also considering something deeper than what is said on the surface there, right? He's considering the spiritual impact of these realities, He's most concerned with their spiritual lives, and that does become clear when you compare it with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And his warning is for those who find their comfort in their money. There have been rich Christians throughout history. Money itself is not the problem. It's the love of money. And we see that in 1 Timothy 6. Um, In Matthew 16, Jesus talks about gaining the whole world, but losing your soul. Having everything, putting all of your hope in resources, in material prosperity. It's turning money into an idol. And so maybe your mind goes to those obvious examples in movies or literature, you know, the Scrooge who is stingy and and self-serving with their money, who is not generous in any way, who does not support others, who, who gives as little as possible. And yet, I would say that it's, it's even more broad than that. It would apply to those who are anxious until the next check arrives. right? Those who are living in fear who find their comfort in the financial budget report that says, okay, we're good, we're in the black. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that is something I struggle with. That is, I'm not pointing the finger here at anyone but myself. I find comfort in a secure financial outlook. And that shouldn't be. Because it does minimize what God is doing, even when the finances aren't great. And it it causes me to think more and more practically about what we're doing now and preparing us, you know, what can we do to get more people in this building? Or what can I do to bring more income into our home so that we can live more comfortably? And and those shouldn't be our concerns. Our hope is in eternity. Money cannot save you. But it can certainly condemn you. Those who, who trust in money... Have wandered away. Look at, listen to First um, Timothy six, verse ten. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So is money capable of causing us to turn away from the Lord? Absolutely. And so we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of wealth's power. And parallel with that or going alongside that is this woe for those who are full. Oftentimes when you have money, uh, you have no need. You're not not worried about whether there's food in the fridge or in the pantry, where you're going to get your next meal. You're full. You're satisfied. And just like money, many find their comfort in food. They turn to food to... to numb the pain of their lives or to numb the pain of a particular trial. And what does that do? Well, food becomes an idol. We have a similar warning there in Amos uh, chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Here he's broadening that or he's making that parallel, the application of of food with the word of God. And that's been from the beginning, from Deuteronomy chapter eight, what do we read in verse three? This was where Jesus turned in his moment of temptation. As Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread to satisfy his hunger, he said this. Well, He doesn't quote the entire verse, but the verse says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So there's a connection here between food and the word of God. What's that connection? It's, it's what is bringing us ultimate satisfaction. What are we ultimately resting in? What are we finding our confidence in? And, and really, as soon as the law was given, there were days of feasting followed by days of fasting. They, they went together. We were always to be reminded that the Lord is the one providing this meal, and that we don't trust in the meal. We don't live by that, for that meal. Right? We, can, we can go without, and we can still draw near to God. We can rest in his word. We can live by his word. So food is a gift from God, and it should be enjoyed, even feasted upon, but food can quickly become a means of numbing ourselves from trials. Right? And those who are satisfied in this life, oftentimes never thirst, right, for for more of God. When we find our cravings satisfied in food, we don't crave for Christ. We don't crave for more of him. There's another warning here, and this one may be the most shocking of them, this woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you who laugh. Now of course, just like the others, there's exceptions to all of these. To every one of these general warnings. Right? Jesus isn't condemning joy. But he's warning those who pursue happiness in the wrong objects, who find their joy, who find their fulfillment, their celebration in the wrong things. Right? They're unwilling to unplug from from entertainment because that's where they find their rest. John Calvin argues that Jesus is referring to the Epicurean mirth. Epicurus Epicurus was a Greek philosopher who promoted the enjoyment of of sensual pleasures, typically referring to food and alcohol. And so in other words, Jesus is warning those who forsake everything else in order to make it to those parties and who's always trying to drown out their sorrows with food and drink. And of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with parties, just like there's nothing inherently wrong with food or money in and of themselves. But when we prioritize that, when we make that our aim, prioritizing entertainment and party, we oftentimes are compromising our calling. Unwilling to disrupt any kind of party by speaking the truth in love, for instance, I, I think we can all relate to that a bit. And so, when we prioritize eternity, what happens? Our envy for the for those who, who laugh and to enjoy uh, this life. Without any consideration for eternity, our envy for them turns into pity. Who the world lifts up as their heroes and who who they want to emulate. And we'll see in the next woe, this idea of woe for those who are popular. I mean, what, what do people want in this life? They want fame. They want a reputation. They want recognition and glory for themselves. See, when we prioritize those things, we begin to envy the wrong people. We set up for ourselves mentors and models who take us away from Christ. And so that last one is a woe, a warning to those when all people speak well of you. Right? When everyone is saying, "Oh, you're such a," he's such a good person. I agree with everything that person says. and you're probably not speaking the truth at times. Because those who are willing to speak the truth will cause division and upset a mixed multitude of people. The gospel is going to offend some people. And the good news is that it's, it's never been easier to offend people in this life. You don't have to say much anymore to offend them. So it's it's really easy to be unpopular. Calvin said, this warning refers peculiar, this is a hard word, peculiarly to teachers who have no plague more to be d- d- dreaded than ambition. So teachers who whose plague is their own ambition because it is impossible for them not to corrupt the pure doctrine of God when they seek to please men. Right? If you're seeking popularity, if you're seeking fame, if you're seeking to please men rather than God or as Galatians, as Paul says it in Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so that's what, what Calvin's speaking to. He's, he's saying, if you're seeking to please men, then you're, you're not serving God. You're not serving Christ. And there is a warning here to the pastor that never condemns the philosophies of this world, who's unwilling to speak ill of anything because they want everyone to speak well of him. And they'll certainly be promoted by the media, and they'll have great popularity and fame for 10 seconds. And then they'll go on to the next person. But as this warning declares, even for that person, their place on Judgment Day will be right next to the false prophets. So it's a severe warning to those who have rejected the justice, the righteousness of God; those who think they can be faithful preachers and never speak about judgment. So, this is a, this, two sermons in a row today that are that are a challenge, aren't they? That that deal with. God declaring his justice. And so doom awaits those who settle for the best this world has to offer. What the world most desires, money, food, happiness, fame, is what Jesus here gives some of his strongest warnings about. Ryle comments that these woes target the men who prefer the joys and so-called happiness of this world to the joys and peace in believing and will not risk the loss of the one in order to gain the other. They will not forsake this world in order to gain Christ. May that not be true of us. May that not be true of the children in this church that be right. may we always find our best in what is yet to come in eternity that nothing would take Christ's central place in our hearts because it turns the giver of those good gifts right. it, it, it makes the gifts that he's given into an idol right? those gifts can never bring contentment apart from the giver they can never replace him And so let us ask him for his help in taking these warnings to heart. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you.